Welcome to the Creative Finance Playbook, where we'll show you how to buy property without banks or credit using creative finance strategies. Join your hosts, Jen and Joe Delafave, as we embark on a thrilling journey to financial freedom through real estate. With our expert advice and insider tips, you'll learn how to build wealth and achieve your dreams. So tune in and get ready to take control of your financial future. Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, my name is Joe, and this is Abby, and we are going to be diving into analyzing creative finance deals. Um, we're going to be getting to some questions later on. We're going to be talking about what we look at, what our team looks at when we're looking at these deals, even some of our processes, kind of sifting out quickly what is going to be a great deal or what's going to not be a great deal, right? Sometimes it's a cash deal. Sometimes that could be a creative finance deal, but we're going to dive into a little bit more of the creative finance deals today and what makes a creative finance deal a, a great deal or even a good deal or even a bad deal, right? Because that makes a difference. Just because somebody says yes to a seller finance deal, guys, doesn't mean it's a great deal. Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. So there are key factors that our team looks at when we're looking at these deals. And Right now, I think we have six, seven under contract this month. I would say most of them are creative finance deals. I don't know if we have a cash one yet. I'm working on one and hopefully I'll have an answer tomorrow on that. I know we're working on a few others, but I think almost all of our deals that we wrote this month are creative finance deals. So we're finding a real knack on how to offer value to a seller, how to pay more and make, obviously, sometimes in a lot of these situations for the seller, more money in their pocket. So and we're going to go over a situation of one that uh, we kind of just had a phone call with 15, 20 minutes before I got into this meeting today with a seller in Texas. So one of the things that we always look for when the very first thing, when I'm looking for, when we're looking at a creative finance deal, and you've probably already heard me say this once before, but I'm going to say it again, is what's our cost per entry on the deal, right? So I see a lot of times some mistakes that I've seen from other folks is they're saying, I've got a seller who will do seller financing, but they want half down, right? Now, maybe there's other situation there where there's still value in that deal. So I'm not saying just completely disregard that, but majority of doing creative finance guys is, is the, what they say is the term is to beat the bank, right? So if I'm going to buy an investment property, I could walk into a bank, usually put 20% down, pay whatever rate they want and closing costs and get into a deal if it's close to turnkey. Um, but the whole art of creative finance is, is how to beat the bank's terms. And this is why I love what we do. So I had a conversation with a realtor yesterday who's actually looking at buying one of our creative finance deals. And she says, well, you know, I think the price that you're asking for it is a little bit high considering the condition. I said, I agree with you on that. She says, but I'm looking at the deal because there's so much more value to this deal. And that's because of the terms. And the terms that we have is we're buying this deal sub two, giving the seller, I forgot how much money down. It wasn't a ton. It was 45,000 total, 25 up front, and then another 27 years down the road. But we have the term of 29 years, which is their existing mortgage. So they love the fact that for $25,000, they could get into a deal for 29-year term. The real value here also is besides the term, was a 3.3 interest rate they're taking over. And part of the reason why I was explaining to the realtor, which it's great talking with somebody who has got a lot of experience because they understand that six months ago to a year ago, when interest rates were 3%, the market was red hot. And you would list a property, especially in places like Florida, when you put it on the market, they would sell for over asking all of the time. And they would sell within minutes, if not days. So the only thing that's changed is most people can't get that 3% interest rate anymore. I was like, but we still can on these deals and you can too. So on these deals, the market still is really, really hot, even though the rest of the market who's paying much higher rates have cooled off a little bit. And so they see the long-term value of a fixed rate of 3.3%. They have a 29-year term, so they don't have a balloon where they have to come up with uh, you know, paying it off or refinancing it at one point. 
they do have to pay the seller um, a second part of their equity because they do have equity, but the seller was flexible when they got their equity. And that's what kind of put the deal together. So it helped keep the initial cost of entry low. So when we look at deals, we have a worksheet that we have our team fill out. We have our students fill out. I'm sure we probably even gave it out to you guys a bunch of times for free. It's out there. Um, it's just our cost of entry worksheets, nothing fancy. It just boils down to here are a list of things that you're going to want to put some numbers to then add them all up. And then when you put all these numbers together, at the end of it, that's what you're going to find out is what your cost to entry is into a creative finance deal. So when you're figuring out what your rate of return is, or what we call your cash on cash return, is if I'm going to put $50,000 or $20,000 or $30,000 into a deal, I want to get this kind of return on it. So what Abby is working on, and I worked on the other day, was working on a calculator for you guys that's easy to compute all the figures. It's going to have a lot of it already spelled out for you. And if you want to use it too, just to see where, you know, I found a property and my cost of entry is 30,000 and I found out it rents for this and I put in all the other backend numbers, it will tell you your rate of return, how much money you're anticipating to make. You can include your management fees, all the other things in there too, to get down to a really good number. And we will also be providing that. So if you're looking for one of our deals and you're, you know, maybe looking at buying it, we want to have most of that already filled out for you and then maybe have you fine-tune if you want to adjust a couple of things here or there but it'll really give you a snapshot of what you're projecting to make on that deal so i think that'll be really really helpful but number one is cost of entry um the second one to me is super important is your cash flow right like what's my monthly payment opposed to what i could rent it for and when i underwrite a deal and i'm figuring out what the payment is the insurance the taxes I figure out what the property was currently assessed for and what the taxes are on that. I find out through the county when they do reassess a property, where do they reassess it? So if I buy it for a much higher price, I know in some places in every couple of years, they're going to reassess it. And if they do, what do they reassess it at and how do they? What can I anticipate my taxes going to once they do reassess it, right? So if I previous owner bought it, for X and it was assessed for 150 and I'm paying for 450, but I bought it on terms. The taxes are going to change eventually. And when I do, what is that going to look like and when will that happen? So I find out that information because uh, you can find out the hard way or no upfront. I also look to see if there's any homestead exemptions or anything like that you might lose. So I really want to put a pencil to what really the monthly PITI is going to be. Then I'm going to figure out what it rents for, right? So I really want to look into when I back into all my fees, what's the monthly cash flow? So I really need to figure out what my monthly payment is that I'm taking over if I'm buying it subject to, or if I'm negotiating a free and clear house, what's the lowest monthly payment I'm going to get? So I want to look at that spread. Number two is that. Number three is where we're going to look into your term length. So I see a lot of folks who will be willing to do terms and you can listen to Abby or my team or a lot of our students if I have somebody who wants to do a very, very short term, there has to be value in it somewhere else because I pass on those deals all the time. We pass on those deals all of the time. You know, a seller who wants top dollar for their house, top everything, and wants you get cash out in one year, like I'm not doing that deal. We'll gladly pass on that. It's just not worth it. It puts too much pressure on us unless we're getting value somewhere else, right? Maybe we got a bunch of equity in the deal and we're planning on doing a fast turn. We have done those before, almost like a hoteling where we could buy it subject to or seller financing where we just make a payment or two buy the property as is clean it out and then turn it around put it in the market and sell it and we do that quickly and therefore and then pay off their mortgage we just did one of those and we um just netted i think seventeen thousand dollars after buying a property holding it for less than 30 days and not doing a thing to it putting it on the market but making the right connections so it does take a little bit of time but it worked out well so there's a lot of different strategies. That was one where we had a little bit more time, but this seemed like a quick, easy, fast strategy and it worked well. So there's a lot of hoteling options, but for some folks who want to get cash out quickly, um, there has to be some equity in there. If not, that is hard to do. So I really don't want to put a, our backs against the wall. So first off is cost of entry into the deal. Number two is what's our monthly payment. Got to keep it low as possible. Number three is my term length. Okay. 
our minimum is usually five years. I don't even ever remember doing a deal one. I shoot myself in the butt for it. No, but I, um, I did a two-year term, one deal, but much other than that, I would never do a term like under five years. And most of ours, we've had plenty of them that are 30 years. So you ask the right questions and you'll get the answers. If you listened, I just dropped it in our Facebook group just yesterday where I did a live seller call not too long ago. I just asked a series of questions and the seller gives you the answer. So that's what we prefer to do is just ask a few different questions. Um, number four thing I look at is the actual selling price. Some people look at that first, right? And I'm going to go over a situation where to me, that's dead last. Um, so we just got off the phone with a seller. She got a property in Texas. It's a duplex. Um, each side is renting for 1400 a side. One tenant will be out next month. The other will be out in like another couple months. So she's collecting 2800 She wants to sell. We talked about having, it's a free and clear property. When she originally spoke to us, she wanted 10% down. She wants 7% interest. When I started putting a pencil to it with our student, we were looking at the deal and we saw there's a deal to be made there, but at those terms, it was still tough to do. She originally wanted 550 for it, but we, my student got her down to 475. So when we put a pencil to it at her interest rate, our payment was $2,300 a month, 475. I said, so if we were to do these things, would any of this work for you? She had to think about it. We were talking to her more, started investigating more. And then she says, well, I've been talking with other people and I've had other offers even higher than you guys at 500, even at 525. And they were willing to pay more because they're going to pay 0% interest. I said, well, tell me more. She says, yeah, at 525 and they would put in a 12 year balloon. I said, so I take out my calculator. She's on the phone with me. And I realized that my payment would go from $2,300 a month to $1,300 a month. I said, so let me get this right. If I buy it from you for $525, I give you $45 grand down, you'll give me a 0% loan for 12 years. And she's like, well, that's what they're doing. I was like, well, then can I do that deal? I'll take that right now. And she's like, what? And I was like, I will take that deal right now. Can I get that deal? I'll sign up for it. And she's like, well, slow down. I said, and I'll tell you what. I was like, you get to pick. If you want me to do a 12-year balloon, I'll put in a 12 years. I'll put in a 10-year balloon. I was like, you know what? If you want an eight-year balloon, I'll put it in there too. You get to pick, but it's going to be somewhere in that range. But if I could buy it from you for 45 grand down at that price, I could pay you 1333 a month and I could do a balloon in 10 years. I'll take that deal. I want it and I'll buy your house. And I think it almost like shocked her that somebody was like trying to throw the money at her. And so um, I was almost going to say, you did such a good job selling the property. I'll take it. Like I'm ready to go. So she says, okay, well, let me look at it and put it in writing. I said, okay, well, let me ask you a question. I don't want to just put it in writing for you to look at it. I want to make sure this is a good fit for you. And when I put it put in writing is what we talked about that this is a go. So I want to make sure that if this is what I put in writing, this is what you want. I made sure we went over the term length. I made sure we went over some of the objections that she had with the previous people looking at it. Part of the issue that she had was the folks prior to looking at it wanted a 30-day inspection with a 10-day window after that to still review it. I said, well, obviously, if they need almost two months to figure out if they want to buy your house after they done a walkthrough, they don't seem like they're that serious or they don't even know what they're doing. I was like, I don't need to do that. I just need 10 days, maybe 14 days just to do my due diligence, to do a walkthrough, put a pencil, do it to make sure that there's nothing unexpected that we didn't find. But within this budget, I think that we're still in a good shot of making this work. And she says, that sounds good, write it up. So we hopped off this or off that call. I hopped on here and shortly after this, our student, well, we're gonna take that deal and let's see what happens to write it up. But she's guys, you gotta remember, she's in a situation where we're able to pay in her eyes, $50,000 more for the property. She doesn't care about the no interest. She doesn't care about the $1,000 per month less payment coming to her. She negotiated better terms. I guess the last folks negotiated better terms than us because she really wasn't concerned about the monthly payment as much as she was her selling price. 
she feels like if she gets her 525 price, that's a win to her, right? And now she could put off paying income tax as much as she would have if she were to just to sell it to a cash buyer for four fifth or four forty is what she says. So this is a big eighty-five thousand dollars swing for her by taking payments over ten years, and then getting a cash out. So the way we're writing out that deal is we're going to make one hundred twenty payments of three thirteen hundred and thirty-three dollars and thirty-three cents, and one final payment of three hundred twenty thousand dollars due in ten years. Right. So once you start adding up the math you put in your PITI, you're a little under a thousand dollars or under two grand a month. And if you put, we're guessing 80 to a hundred thousand into the property, you should be able to cash flow 18, $1,900 a door. And there's a double. So you could get 3,600 out of that. Not only that, you're cash flowing and then you're paying your loan down so rapidly that in an area that's going to be heavily appreciating their multi or not multi, but million dollar properties being built, new builds around it. And it's a very hot area in Texas. It's an area in Texas where you wouldn't believe this stuff happens, but it does happen. So it's not out in the podunk. It's not out in the country. It's not out in farmland. Um, this is actually in a metro area, which is uh, one of the hottest in the country. So bravo to the student for doing a great job of finding the property, sourcing it, weeding out all the other properties where the seller would say, no, this doesn't work for me and finding somebody who this is a good option for and a good fit. And then getting on a closing call where we could see if it's a good fit even further. And it sounds like it is. So if we continue down this road and process, you know, this could be a really good deal for either a student, something that we could take with our student, or we could look to assign that to somebody else who might want that deal, especially somebody who's looking for one in that area. And I have a feeling with getting a 0% mortgage in an area like that, considering rates are so darn high right now, that won't be an issue. And the ARV, here's the good thing, guys. It does need about 80,000 to $100,000 worth of work, but the ARV right now, if it was done, is about 600 grand. So you're buying it, I can't say at a heck of a bargain to where you're buying it way under. This is not a fix and flip. This is something where you're gonna put a little bit of money into. And this is a long-term hold because the area is appreciating. And it's going to continue to do that. And obviously, you could look at depreciation, all the other good stuff, and that's a whole other course. So we'll get into that at another time. Um, so once we add up our final price into the equation, because that's always a consideration. But once again, guys, like we just talked about, a lot of times if that seller feels like they've got top dollar. In some situations, if you're buying sub two, you might have to buy top dollar. Um, sometimes we're in situations right now We've had some sellers reach out to us who maybe recently bought a house. They need to sell it and they can't afford to sell it due to the realtor commissions and closing costs compared to what they owe on it. A lot of people just spent way over asking price for their house in the last 12 months. Because if you bought a house in the last 12 months, you usually have to pay over asking. And if you did, there's a lot of situations and reasons why people necessarily don't want to sell, but have to sell. They've got relocated or other reasons. And when they go to put their house on the market so soon, it's very hard to do. It's always been hard to do, guys, but it's extremely hard to do when the market's pulling back slightly right now. So with that being the case, there's a lot of folks out there who will need some help. So having that strategy where I would have to pay more for that deal because nobody in the market's even paying that for it. But if I could get into it with no money down and a property that cash flows, and it's a long-term deal, those deals are the ones we want. So those are what we're looking for right now. So I say the same thing for you guys. Where do we find these leads? Now's a great time to reach out to all of your realtor friends in your market or where you're looking to buy. If you don't have realtor friends in the market you're looking to buy, make some, right? And you reach out to that realtor friend and just say the same thing I just said is, do you have any folks who need to sell a home, who recently bought it, who can't afford to sell it, because they owe too much due to the commissions and the closing costs, you know, they might have to write a check for thousands of dollars. And one of the deals that we just wrote recently was just that situation. I think I talked about it last week. Folks just closed on the house three, four months ago and um, got accepted to a school in another state for the family. They're moving. I think they close in their next house like in a couple of weeks. So they need to get the show on the road for their new house, guys. So this is a situation that's really working out well for the seller because they tried putting on the market and didn't sell. They can't afford two payments. And if they did sell it on the market, they're going to have to write a check for almost twenty dollars to $30,000 if they got full asking. 
which they didn't even get a walkthrough. So if they did get an offer, it would probably have been a lot less. Um, so these are some of these reasons why it's a cash flowing property. It will work very well for what we do. So creative finance, I think in the next, and you hear everybody starting to talk about it in the next 18 months to 24 months to 36 months, we're going to be able to help out a lot of sellers in situations where this doesn't work out for other investors. Um, the, the cash people who need big discounts, who need to find the free and clear properties or ones that have big equity. We love the low equity. There's not many folks looking for that list. We love those low equity deals where people don't have a ton of equity, where they need a really large down payment, or they really need, you know, hundreds or thousands of dollars where they feel like they could get cashed out. We want to find the situations where there's very little equity and this could be a real good fit for them because I could pay more, right? Does all that make sense, guys? Next, I'm going to look at is the property, the area. Is this an area now that I'm planning on buying in and keeping, or is this an area that is still a great deal and I'm looking to share that deal with another investor who might want that, right? So what's the condition of the property? Because we prefer the beautiful houses in beautiful neighborhoods that are turnkey. Those are my favorite ones. So that beautiful house, when I call the I buy houses sign on the side of the road and you call those folks and you say, hey, I have a house, it's turnkey, needs nothing. I know I'll sell it quickly. What would you guys offer? They'll tell you, don't even bother because we're just going to want to pay cash, right? And get some big discount on those turnkey houses, guys, they turn them away. That's what we want. I want those beautiful turnkey houses and beautiful neighborhoods, especially the low equity that need to sell all favorite, favorite key points that things I look for when we do mailing, do a big mass mailer. That's some of the things that I'll pull on my list, especially absentee out-of-state owners that are individually owned, not an LLC, low equity, those good things. Those are what I want. So those are the folks who'll have some flexibility. And in those situations, we could really help them. Does all that make sense? See people writing down stuff, good. Take them notes, that's what we're here for. So when we are looking at what most investors look for, when they pull lists, the cash folks, you'll hear them say a lot of times, you know, they've had a lot of calls. I get a lot of those calls from investors where they're pulling up some of our properties and are you looking to get an offer on your you know, property, yada, yada street? And they'll pull whatever list and they'll find you, right? Those get to be, those sellers get to get so beat down especially in some of these areas, right? Where they might have a handful of people reaching out to them. And one of my friends who's down in the Florida market in Tampa says that he's had sellers where their voicemail even says on their personal cell phone, if you're calling to put in an offer at X, Y, or Z property, it's not for sale. I was like, wow, these people are getting that many calls that they're setting up their voicemail saying that kind of stuff. So those lists are getting heavily hit all the time. So I always like to look under the rocks that nobody else looks for. So like I said, that low equity, nobody's pulling that list. Recently bought homes, nobody's pulling that list either. So absentee owners with low equity that are individually owned are some of my favorite lists to pull. We send them a mailer, ask them they want to sell their house. I look for ownership less than five years. And I don't know why, but it seems like a lot of the deals that we make have been just that. They kind of fit that avatar of a seller in that situation really, really well. All right, cool. So these are the things we look for. Will I do it on a non-turnkey home? Absolutely. Will I try to get terms every single time? Um, so there's a lot of times where I'm looking at a fix and flip and sometimes what we'll do is if I'm going to take on a light fix and flip, I'll try to see if I could buy the property on terms, letting the seller know that I'm going to get them, I'll buy the property. I'm going to get in there and do some of the work myself, my team will. And then I'm going to list it on the market with a realtor right away and sell it. And then once I do, that's when, you know, well, I'll get them cashed out and I'll get cashed out too. So that's when I finally make my money. So it's in my best incentive to get it done as fast as possible. So if they have a little flexibility when I'm going to get them cashed out, this could work out well. So this is a hybrid method. 
what I always call a smart flip, but that hybrid method of how I could do a fix and flip without having to get a hard money lender to buy the property and to do all of those things to where now I let the seller hold the note. We'll put in the resources and I'm only going to do this in light fix and flips. I'm not doing this in heavy rehabs because I don't love doing them, but if you want to fine, that's no big deal. Nothing wrong with that, but I prefer the, you know, bathroom, carpet, paint, list it and go. Um, or honestly, sometimes my favorite one is we don't do any of it. I might just clean out all of their stuff because one of the selling points, and I'm going to drop a little bit of a nugget right now for you guys. And I just did my first on-site seller appointment in a year. We buy all of our houses virtually. But the one thing that I brought up that I always try to make sure that I learned from one of my coaches a long time ago is if you think about it, and I just lived it so I could live it, explain to you firsthand experience. When you're moving, I just sold my house. They're actually closing out tomorrow morning, but we moved out almost a month and a half ago. But when you're moving and you've lived in a house for five years, 10 years, mine was 16 years, you accumulate stuff. So you got to think about when somebody's moving, what are they going to do with all of their stuff? That's what they're thinking about. If you take a look around your house and your basements, if you live in places where there are basements, there's even more stuff in your garages and all this, like, what are you going to do with it all? So one of the selling points that I always make sure that I tell a seller, it always goes a really long way is, you know, I want the seller to know that they're, we're buying the property as is. Take all the stuff that you want with you and anything that you don't want, leave it behind and I'll take care of it. Rather it's an old couch, whether it's old clothes, whether it's an old car or boat, I don't care, whatever it is. If you have anything here that you don't want, leave it behind and just take the important stuff with you. And when you're packing up, you don't want to have to worry about getting a dumpster or getting folks over to come help you clean all the stuff out. That goes a long way. And I'll be honest with you guys, we've had people take us up on that offer a little bit too serious where they've left like food on the countertop. There's like moldy black bananas. Um, so either way, it goes a long way when you're working with the seller. So yes, we buy the property as is, but what do we do with all of their stuff? If it's a house they inherited, what do they do with all of mom or dad's stuff? Right? That's a lot. So offering that really does go a long way. Um, so that's really what I have when we look at our creative finance deals. Property condition, where's located? Is this going to be a long-term hold for me? I'll have a bunch of different action strategies. So maybe next week, Abby, what we would do is once we write these creative finance deals, like what are all these extra strategies? Because there are so many different things. And here's the key, guys, is there's a lot of ways to make a deal happen. But part of the way that you can make the deal happen is by knowing more ways of what to do once you have one. And the more creative ways that you can get to dispo a deal, and that means is once you have a deal under contract, what am I going to do next, right? Am I going to turn this into a rental? I can turn this into an Airbnb. Am I going to do a lease purchase? Am I going to do a fix and flip? Right. So we want to kind of break down like what are all the exit strategies and really get familiar with what all the exit strategies are. So, and it's kind of weird to say it this way, but like if you look at the NFL, a lot of offensive coordinators used to be a defensive coordinator. So they know how the defense thinks and then they run the offense to think around that. Right. So it's kind of the same way with this. If you could figure a lot of the ways to exit out of these deals and the multiple different strategies, it'll help you be more creative of getting into the deals. So this is why we can make more deals than most folks can is because we have not only a lot of ways to make that deal happen, but a lot of ways how to get out of it too and make it a win for everybody. So I guess that's all that one, Abby, for us. What we'll go over next week is extra strategies. Um, all right, cool. Oh, we got Julie coming in here. So questions, concerns, comments. We had some questions from last week, I see. What do we have, Abby? Um, let me look. I sent you a screenshot too. Oh, okay. um, let's see here. Oh, okay, here we go. Um, so Dan last week asked how to discuss these options with the seller. So Dan, that's a great question. Um, 
we listen to the seller's needs. We've designed scripts that really ask the seller questions and have them give us the offer. So this is something that I've learned from my coach, Ron the Grand, a long time ago. And I think this is the difference between a little bit more seasoned negotiators just by asking questions, gathering information, right? And then if you ask the right questions, you'll have the seller give you the offer. So I guess to answer this, we kind of find out more of like what their desire is with the property. Why are they selling? Tell us obviously a time frame for when they want to sell, if it needs any work. We get into some financials as far as like what they owe and you know what they want for it. And I never try to negotiate price too hard. I just want to find out what they want for it. Um, but then I really break down to seeing if would terms work for them. And if it does work for them, or if it's something they're open to, we get them on a call with one of our team members and we kind of lay out what that looks like, dive into more detail, answer any questions they have, see if it's a good fit for them or us. And if it is, we make that deal. If it isn't, we put them in a follow-up system or figure out what to do next. If it doesn't work for them by asking them that question, no, that terms doesn't work for me. We figure out where the cash offer will be. So we want to make a cash offer or a terms offer on any lead that comes in. Now, if it's a turnkey, beautiful house in a beautiful neighborhood, and they're looking for a cash offer, I'm not going to insult some folks and have a beautiful house that needs nothing. And it's a $300,000 home and they want $300,000 for it. I'm not going to be the folks and our team knows better to say, we'll give you $150 for it. Because like you lose your credibility, you kind of look like a schmuck and you're going to get hung up on and I hope you do. Um, for us, we let them know that if you're looking for a cash buyer, you know we do pay cash, but those are the houses that usually need a lot of work and we get a big discount and we can stretch and pay full price, full price offer for their home. But the way that we'd have to make that work and make us get to their number is with the seller financing. You know, so if that's something they'd reconsider later on, we'd love to talk to them. And if they're looking for a cash offer, you know, that wouldn't work out. And we let them know that. So we don't want to say, you know, I'm not your buyer, and I don't want to say I'm going to give you half for your beautiful house, right? Because that gets insulting. And I would know if somebody were to call me and do that, I know how I'd feel about that. I think you guys would too. Um, so how to find subject to deals by Melissa last week. Um, so they actually, we don't find them. Leads come in, we source leads, right? And we just have a a kind of a funnel system to where we just ask everybody the same questions to gather information, right? We see if it's a good fit with seller financing or with the sub two, just by asking once we get through our script, we kind of get to what we call the million dollar question, which is just really, you know, would you be open to terms? We break it down a little bit more, but you know, would you be open to terms or would you consider that? And if it is, we make that closing call booked appointment for us. What we've gathered is our information, our KPIs, is we do about 160 leads a week. Our incoming leads are what we receive every week. Um, usually 10% turn into closing calls. And it's usually one out of eight, one out of nine turns into a deal. So therefore, I know if we do say 75 leads, I'm going to get about eight closing calls, which turns into about one deal. So if I do that twice, 160, I'm looking at about two deals a week. And so that's where we're looking at was with our KPIs. Now, some of those are going to be cash. Most of those will be creative finance. And you can have a little bit better KPIs as far as that goes. If you start doing targeted lists, you know, we do a lot of social media marketing. So we do a very broad scope of who are looking for us and who reach out to us. So we aren't just looking for distressed sellers or anything like that. Ours is just like almost like a billboard that anybody could just, you know, reach out and say hi to. So with that being the case, those are our KPIs. So I know with our Facebook marketing, our cost per leads, I was just looking at today with our team and um, you know, our statewide, we're probably a little under 10 bucks per lead, incoming lead. And some of the ones we run nationwide are like under two bucks a lead. So it's really inexpensive. So we can get a fair amount of leads inexpensive and make deals happen. So this is where I guess to answer your question, we just work on lead gen. We work on lead gen. We ask them the questions and the sub two deals will kind of just work them way out by asking the right questions. And they're in scenarios where that needs to happen. So they find us, I guess. Um, <clears throat> how to better protect us, the buyer in these deals. 
so great, Scott. Uh, great question, Scott. So how to protect you as the buyer if you're going to buy a creative finance deal? So the one thing I am always really big on is making sure that you have proper insurance set up, right? A lot of folks I hear of a lot of different ways to set up insurance. You know, do we leave it in the previous seller's name and add them to it as additionally insured? Or, you know, there's so many different ways that you hear. You are, no, you are now the owner of the property if you are the buyer. The previous owner is no longer the owner of that property. So the current owner, which would be you or your LLC or, or your trust or however you build it out, is going to be the new owner. That's who you're going to want your insurance policy through. So how we do it is we have the previous owner on our insurance policy. Is it a, a additionally insured? So they are on the insurance policy but the new insurance policy is under us. So to protect you as the buyer, make sure you have insurance on the property. It's paid on time because that's also gonna make sure the bank stays off your back because they wanna make sure that their property is well insured. Make sure that you have the seller, the previous owner's name on there is additionally insured on your policy. The other thing I look at too is making sure on your insurance, you have full replacement value. So if you've had, we had an incident where we had a fire at one of our properties and if you have full replacement value, they're going to replace it all if it was brand new and we had to pay our deductible, $1,000, which then lo and behold, we got that check back because it wasn't even our fault, our tenant did it. So it literally cost us nothing. The insurance didn't count against us and our whole house got redone from just a little smoke damage. Um, but full replacement insurance was huge because if not, um, they can prorate everything. So if you do have an incident happen, you know, you might only get 60 cents on the dollar and you might come out of pocket thousands of dollars for, for one incident. So for the slight difference in insurance, I did learn that lesson, but we had great insurance. Number two is we had rental replacement. So while the house was being tore apart for the next six months and we're waiting for inspections and code enforcement and all the stuff to go through, we were still collecting rent every month. So make sure if you have rentals, and especially if you're buying on terms, but it doesn't matter if you're buying on terms or not. If you have a rental or whatever you have, make sure you have full replacement for your insurance and make sure you have rental replacement to rental coverage. So you do still collect rent if you are in an incident. Um, sewers, make sure that stuff you have backup there, um, coverage if there's sewer backup. I've had instances before where one of my friends had a bad issue with that, learned from other people. So if that happens to you, you have coverage now. But those are a couple of the small things that I would say that really protects you, Scott, the buyer, making sure that you're making the payments. If you're taking over a loan subject to making sure that you're making those payments on time to that lender, making sure, especially close, that you receive the mortgage payment every month. So if there's a change in the payment due to an escrow shortage or overage, you're on top of that. Do you want to know how many times that you think you're sending in your 750 payment and then the the taxes increased or there's a shortage of escrow and the payment change. And if you're not receiving that payment and verifying every month that you're sending out the right payment, you might be making late payments on the seller's behalf and not even realizing it because you aren't getting their statement, noticing a change. So a thing that we like to make sure we do is we get the incoming statement every month from the properties that we own subject to and make sure that the outgoing payment is still matching the bill making sure there wasn't a difference in the current payment. You want to verify that monthly. So if you have you doing that or somebody else, you could have a service company do that, um, which is a paid service. Just like anything else, they do make mistakes. So we like to do that in-house. Don't like to. My wife doesn't like to, but that's what we do. Um, so we make sure the payments are being paid on time. We make sure the right payments, right amounts being paid on time. We've got proper insurance on the property. Right, so those are things that really protect you as the buyer. If you make your payments on time, you've got proper insurance. The rest of it now is how do you structure your businesses? You can turn it into a rental. Um, we like lease purchases um, because it's a little bit better than rentals, but that's a different subject. Um, Joe, there's some questions in the chat too. Oh, okay. Um, you know what? So how do you handle a reverse mortgage? That's a great question. That's actually one that I saw come up on our team today. So reverse mortgage is a tricky situation. It's not impossible to do, but you can, and time is of the essence of these things. It's not anything you're going to want to do long-term. 
So a reverse mortgage is the only program where the, it's designed for the bank to take back the home once the person does pass away. So on a reverse mortgage, the question is the owner, are they alive or not? If they are currently still living and they want to move on from the property, there are ways that you can get in there and sometimes do a quick fix and flip. There are ways that you can get in there and even do some type of arbitrage, things like that. Um, if the person has passed away, that's when the bank is coming from the property. So you either are going to have to probably buy it out. A lot of times you want to see what they all want it compared to what it's worth. How much money do they take out of it? If they did the reverse mortgage years ago for in Tampa in 2015, and now it's 2022 and that house went up so much more value opposed to what they owe, you could probably get into a deal there. If they just did it recently, you know, you could run into some issues. So I have not done a reverse mortgage. I know it's a very risky deal to get into. So I, I've come across them, but in a lot of the situations that we have, the person recently passed away. And if that's happened, you're really going to have to look at it as almost like a cash deal. That's how we do it. Does it work for a wholesale cash deal? Because getting into that on a terms deal is not going to work. Um, hope that answers that. Um, what about using the seller as a second mortgage and 100% financing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think if your question is using the seller, well, I guess well, I guess we'd want to figure out what you mean more by that. Tristan, are you able to pop on here? Are you still here? I guess I'd have to find out more about that question to answer it correctly, but what about using the seller as second mortgage and 100% financing? Yeah, that's really what we'll do is on a wrap mortgage or something like that. If they do have equity, we want to buy them with no money down every single time. So we will try to not make a second mortgage payment back to the seller because that eats into cash flow, but that's where we're going to certainly try to uh, wrap that second portion. Um, how do you get those monthly mortgage statements from the previous seller if they are still listed? Um, so you could do a change of address trace and have them send it to you. You can get power of attorney and get access to their online account. You can, I have one seller, two sellers. They just literally, because they have other accounts at that lender and bank, they can't change their address because that changes their address for all of their stuff. So every month when they get their statement, they just take it out, take a picture of it, and they text it to me. And I get it every single month. So, but that's the one thing though, that we, you always want to make sure is that you do get it monthly. So some folks, if you can't get it monthly, make sure somehow you're able to get your hands on it. And my explanation is if there's a change in escrow, I want to make sure I'm sending out the right payment. So I need this every month. Um, so set an alarm on your phone or whatever it is, and they make sure we get it. But most of them, we try to just get them mailed directly to us. And that's usually most of the case, what happens. Um, the seller has a line of credit on the home, but the mortgage is paid off. Would that payment become my payment if they agree to seller financing? Ashley, yes, that would. So a couple things to look at. If the seller has a line of credit on the home, but the mortgage is paid off. So that line of credit, you have to remember, is like an open checkbook. So for an example, if it's a $300,000 home, the bank gives them an open line of credit for $100,000, but they're only borrowed forty. dollars So that monthly payment of you know, $600 a month is what your payment is. And that's the payment you would take on. Now, to be careful, with that. Sometimes in the beginning, they're interest only. Then down the road, it turns into principal and interest. Sometimes those are variable rates. Most of them all are. All are. So be careful of that because if the rates are climbing right now, that means your payment will increase. Um, and if you look at the scary part in the back, there's always the, like the disclaimer. But if you look at a lot of home equity loans or line of credit, they always say that this is a variable rate and it has a roof of like 15.9%. So who is to say it doesn't jump from what you thought originally was at 3% when you made the deal, now rates are at you know, 
8% in the future and your payment jumped up. So kind of keep that in consideration. They're mostly variable. The next thing too is sometimes they have a prepayment penalty for paying them off within the first couple of years because they usually charge you no finance, or I'm sorry, no closing costs to initiate it. But if you do pay it off sooner, sometimes they do charge you, not usually a lot, but they do. Um, some, most will. Most importantly is the open checkbook is my concern, right? They have a $100,000 limit. They have a $40,000 balance. They said, I've got my money. It's all I need was that $40,000. And then three years from now, you notice when you looked at your account that your balance went way up, your payment changed, and you realized that they wanted to go out and buy a camper and they took out another 40 grand out of it because the line of credit is still in their name, although the property is not, it's an open line of credit still in their name. So for me, that's always very worrisome. There are things that you could have them sign that says, you know, they won't go do that, but you know, people are people, right? So just keep that on the consideration. A lot of times, if I have somebody doing something similar to this, especially if they're going to go apply for it, right? So I'm talking to a seller. I'll give you a situation. It's a free and clear home, $300,000 property, and I'll do seller financing, but I want a hundred grand down. They could go take out a home equity line of credit and go take their money and run and we'll take over that payment. But we'll try to talk about doing a home equity loan. And the loan versus a line of credit, the line of credit is not is the open checkbook. The home equity loan for the $100,000 are this loan against the property, right? So it's not the open checkbook. They'd have to reapply for another loan to go take more money out. And obviously you could see how that'd be a little bit trickier. Make sense? Um, but yes, you would take over their payment, long story short. And that'd now be your payment. Um, seller financing, are you listed as the owner with the county and then able to write off the mortgage interest in any yes, Trace? We are the owner. Um, technically my trust is, but yes, we get to write off all of the interest paid. Um, the depreciation, which, you know, we always look at is really big for us too. So yeah, you get to write all that stuff off. If you do have a sub two deal on it and your seller will receive that statement from their previous, from their mortgage company showing that this much was written off last year, or this is much you paid in interest last year we get that statement from the seller. So typically myself or my wife track down the previous owner and say, hey, Bank of America sent you or is going to send you a statement showing how much interest was paid last year on your account. Or if they haven't, can you please get that for us? And then I need that for accounting. And we get that for every single one of those deals. And we send that to the accountant because even though the loan is still in their name, we are the property owner. We are the ones making those payments. We're the ones that benefit of that. I hope that answers. Um, get down any of our questions from last week. I think I finished them all. Um, make sure we cover that. Um, how to structure our contracts. Um, Melly and I will be going over that later on today. Um, but this is what we do is, um, you know, and I tell a seller when we're working with them, that everything that we're going to talk about, I'm going to put it in writing, then we're going to send it to them to make sure that we go over it. I try to make sure that we spell it out really simple. I want to make sure that we're very, very thorough. I want to make sure that we almost over explain so the seller has no, I didn't know that. You didn't tell me that because there's so many details to go over. I want to make sure that we really spell it out and take our time. I don't ever want to rush anybody. We don't ever want that experience. And I've said this to all of my students and my own team, I would walk away from any deal to and stay friends rather than try to get in a deal with somebody and they didn't know something or they didn't feel good about it because there's not a deal in the world to me that's worth that because there's so many sellers out there who really need help, who are really out there to make a deal with you too. So it's never worth trying to convince somebody if it's a good fit for them and they feel good about it, they're going to want to do it just like you will. And that's the folks that I love working with. So I, we only work with folks who want to work with us. Um, <clears throat> so to that be the case, um, 
really work with and find folks. And I don't want to say this to be rude, but don't waste your time with time wasters because there are a lot of people out there who are really in a tough spot. And when you listen to some of the stories and some of the things they're in, some of it's a little bit heartbreaking at times. A lot of it, like you feel great because I'm able to help and impact these people's lives in a great way. So knowing some of these tools in our toolbox are, are, are helpful. So um, that's what I got for this week, guys. So contract breakdown, I want to list the price. I want to list the term length, the monthly payment they're expected, any down payment that we talked about, the things we chatted about earlier, right? All the things that we talked about, the four things, my, my down payment, they're expecting this much. I'm buying the property as is, you know, the term length. So this is what they're looking for. And this is what I want to spell out. Um, price, monthly payment. When I do the monthly payment, <clears throat> if it's a free clear house, I make sure that everybody understands that that's not including who's paying the taxes and insurance. If I'm paying you $1,200 a month for the monthly payment, am I expecting them to pay the taxes or insurance? So you want to have that spelled out. And I will tell you the answer is no, you are paying the taxes and insurance out of yours the payment that you're constructing to the seller goes to them, right? So we want to have that stuff properly spelled out. Who pays for all this? If I'm buying a property where there's current tenants in there, I want to get a copy of that lease. I want to get a breakdown of who's paying what and have everybody off, you know, okay that. So I know who pays the utilities and who doesn't. I want to find out at closing, right, that all of a sudden I wasn't told that I'm paying all the utilities and where I thought it wasn't. All the important stuff you want to spell out so there's no confusion. Cool. I think I hit it on the head. I'm under an hour, which is all like a huge win, guys. So I'm glad this worked out so well this week. Next week, I think we're going to really dive into um, all the extra strategies. So we talked to a seller. Says, yeah, I would do that. Send it over. We send it on over. And they say, you have a deal. Now, what is our plan? What is the transaction part of it look like, right? So maybe we'll touch on lightly like what that is, going to closing, how do we get all that set up? And then once I do, what am I doing next? So, and how do I make some money on this deal? Because that's what it's really about too. It's like, yeah, you want to help everybody, but how's this going to also help you? How are you going to get involved and how's this going to be a win for your investment, your time, your resources, your money? How are you going to make out in this deal? And the more ways you know, the better you can read everything around you. And it almost feels like a cheat code. And it's the weirdest way to say it. I don't know how any other way to say that, but I know for an example, if you have somebody with a lot of creative finance experience, you have somebody with no creative finance experience and you have them look at the same 10 deals, same 20 deals, the person who has that knowledge of creative deals because they have more ways of getting into it and out of it will make more deals of the same amount of leads. So it's about being efficient. And that's what we're going to go over next week. So thank you guys so much for coming out. I hope this is helpful for you guys. I hope I could, uh, thank you for spending an hour with me today on your busy day. And I hope it was worth your while. And next week, Abby and I will be bringing some hotness on the dispoing side too, how we can get rid of them deals and all the different ways to do it. So I'm going to spend some time putting together a really cool list of all the different ways. And uh, we'll share that with you next week, guys. So until then, uh, stay tuned and uh, we'll see you then. Thank you so much, guys. See you then.